Welcome to the Happy Mouth Podcast, your delicious daily news fix for the hospitality community. We will be offering a craveable menu of headlines, food for thought, and much, much more. These are the bite-sized news stories you need to know, and they'll drop every morning, Monday through Friday. Hello, world, and welcome back to the Happy Mouth Podcast, your delicious daily news fix for the hospitality community. It's another fun Friday. It is Friday, May the 28th, the last Friday in May. We're almost in June. I'm mad at it. Let's go, June. Yeah, I'm happy for June. How are you doing? I Everything good? Yeah, everything's great. So it's fun Friday. Today, uh, we're going to talk about a great chef that we want to highlight. Super uh, great chef. Yeah. Chef Eric, who is at Restaurant 886 in Manhattan. NYC. Yeah. He is a member of the 2021 Eater New Guard. Yeah, he is. And he's also, aside from 886 in Manhattan, he's also currently up opening up a new restaurant in Brooklyn. Love to hear it. Let's open up all those new restaurants. A bit of background on Chef Eric. He opened his second restaurant, which we mentioned, 886, in the East Village in NYC in 2018, uh, with the intention of creating a Taiwanese spot where he and his business partner, Andy, could hang out, eat great Taiwanese food, and have a few drinks. Chef Eric is a member of the 2021 New Guard, which are leaders who are using food to challenge conventions, empower communities, and make positive change. I'm sure that this is a great honor for Chef Eric, who has talked about his journey of accepting his Taiwanese identity in the food space. So during COVID, Chef Eric pivoted well. 886 was obviously, like many other restaurants in New York, very affected early on. New York had a really rough time early on in the pandemic, and he had to he had to pivot, change the menu to make it more deliverable, classic and homey. They lowered their prices instead of raising them to make the meals more affordable for delivery, and a few other tweaks to the business that ended up being pretty smart moves. Yeah, I mean, I feel like pivot was like the operative word of 2020. I had a dollar for every time I heard the word pivot. I'd be a really rich person. <laughs> You'd have a million dollars. <laughs> Chef Eric ended up delivering his own Scallion Foods beef noodle kick some days. They also improved their outdoor dining experience, as we saw many restaurants do. Yeah, smart. It was one of those things that you just really kind of had to do. If you had any kind of sidewalk seating or any outdoor space that you could commandeer, you just had to grab it. Totally. So smart moves to recognize that and get it. And, and I think one of the things that's going to come out of this pandemic, which we've said a few times on the pod, is that a lot of this outdoor seating is going to stick around. So good. Yeah. I mean, it was so great to get around all that permitting mm -hmm. and really capitalize on that space. Yeah, it's going to make the restaurants a lot stronger because you, you think about places where you can see people year round, like L.A., but also in New York, they're doing things like covered outdoor seating with heaters. And they're essentially going to turn a lot of these sidewalks into year round eating places. Yeah, those sort of like yurts, if you will, were like super cool in New York. I think New York did a great job. And I think it's just, again, for the entire business nationally, just taking sidewalks and taking outdoor spaces over improves the dining experience. It generates more revenue. People like to sit outside or at least have the option to. Totally. Um, and particularly in warmer months, you're just going to be able to get people to come out more because it's just a nicer, more comfortable, um, 100%. enhanced experience, especially given the fact that we've been able to spend some money on these outdoor spaces and actually make them feel really premium. It's not just a table on the sidewalk anymore. Totally. I mean, you see what you've probably driven through Beverly Hills recently. You see what Spago built 
outside of their restaurant in Beverly Hills. It's like, it's, it's like another restaurant outside. Love it. <laughs> yeah, it's like 4,000 square feet outdoors. I'm like, how did they get this permitted? But it's totally. going to be there for a long time. Yeah, Golden Bowl in Malibu, they have a great outdoor space. Fantastic. And plus, you're getting your natural vitamin D from the sun. So that's always nice. It's the best. Absolutely. So Chef Eric also recently founded a grassroots initiative called Enough is Enough, which brings awareness to hate crimes against Asian Americans. He reached out to other chefs in New York City to host virtual cooking classes that would help raise money and awareness for the cause. Yeah, love that. Love the monetization of the virtual cooking world. I mean, just coming at it all layers and all angles. Chef Eric also collected donations. And he gave half of these donations to organizations that help tackle food insecurity. What a guy. He gave half of the donations to organizations that help tackle food security in the Black community. And then he also gave half of the other donations to support Asian communities. And they raised over, get this, $70,000. Nice job. Chef Eric. Let's go. What a match. He then uh, concepted a new restaurant in Greenpoint, Brooklyn called Wen Wen, named after his mother and his wife. Only a few years ago, uh, Chef Eric was worried about how people would respond to traditional Taiwanese food. And for Wen Wen's menu, he decided to embrace his heritage fully, not worry about that, and just go for it. I love it. I love that too. Oh, it's so good. I mean, 15 years ago, you know, this type of food was served in, in for family meal. You know, you really didn't see mm. ethnic food being celebrated, you know? So it's so cool that he's like really leaning into his heritage. Mad respect. I agree. Great name too. Phenomenal name. Yeah, we've been getting some good names for new restaurants on the podcast. We had, uh, what do we have? Twisted Plants <laughs> the other week. When, when, like, come on. These are, these are great names. Fantastic. Whoever's doing the creative on these needs to get paid more. <laughs> this is so amazing, actually. I watched this fantastic video of him actually preparing this whole deboned fried chicken. And he does it all with this sort of traditional mm. sort of um, Taiwanese knife. And so, you know, he doesn't use a boning knife. He uses a huge, like, cleaver to debone this chicken. Okay. And such a finesse technique with it. I was super impressed. Um, he also makes this super killer, like, blood rice cake, which, yeah, he uses, like, this really high-quality pig's blood, which is still pretty viscous when he um, pours it onto the rice that he soaks overnight and uh, makes this cake and, and this phenomenal dish. I cannot wait to taste this. So he's urging everyone to try uh, new foods at least once. And it's from the looks of it, he's kind of pushing the boundaries here in terms of offering this traditional Taiwanese uh, cuisine to a more mass audience, which is amazing. His quote was, there are so many people willing to be educated on your food and your culture. That's what he's excited about in terms of opening new restaurants. So I love that. Embracing your culture thinking of new concepts that the market hasn't seen before love it, and tying it all together with your skill set as an executive chef. That's what this whole thing's all about. That's that right there exemplifies what the Happy Mouth podcast is all about. It's about ingenuity. It's about creativity. It's about food and it's about embracing who you are, pushing it out there. And at the end of the day, yeah. And at the end of the day, making a living by doing it, being fair. Which is a bonus. I mean, if you really lean into something you love, it's actually just a bonus to be compensated for it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that he's really, really embracing his heritage and uh, and really developing a menu 
um, that is pretty non-traditional, like you said, and really getting it out there in front of a new audience. It's just phenomenal. Um, Let's talk to this guy. Let's get him on the pod. Chef Eric, we're going to call you. Um, (laughs) Should we pay some bills here? Yeah, let's do it. Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving this problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front of house operations. Learn about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com slash kiosk. Okay, so we have the pleasure of chatting with Chef Eric Z, and he will be talking about his most recent accomplishments. PC and I, we have some questions for you. We came across your name, and we were so super impressed with you, and we're so excited to chat with you. We want to give the listeners some of your background, your ethos in cooking, and overall just share some space with you and have great conversation. So thank you for being here, and welcome to the Happy Mouth Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. We were doing a little bit of research on you, ma'am. We came across this story, the award that you garnered from Eater. Congratulations on that. Just phenomenal. Thank you. Now, just a quick Google search of your name really delivers some heavy-hitting headlines here. You've got a lot to live up to just based on the headlines from your Google search. Chef Eric Z, changing the game for Taiwanese food in New York City. How Eric Z empowered New York City restaurants to do more. These are just heavy-hitting headlines, man. Changing the games. Bento boxes on the front lines. I was very impressed by just the Google results of your name. Thank you. I appreciate it. Certainly, we did some pretty cool stuff in the past year. But changing the game, you know, the game is changing me. There's certainly no part of me changing the game. But I appreciate the kind words from, uh, I believe it was Jenny. Yeah. Cool. Give the listeners a little bit about yourself your background, and your ethos in cooking. I was born and raised in Taipei, Taiwan. I came to the States when I turned 18 uh, to attend college. It's kind of the path that my parents put me on. Uh, I grew up in a very Western worshipping family. Like My dad worships American culture, French cuisine, and all those things. And growing up, being a byproduct of his, I kind of also fell into it. I went to American school. Uh, I would always pick McDonald's over the street stalls. You know, as I got older and, uh, you know, my father is a product of his time. But me coming to the States, I got really homesick. And and I started realizing that my culture is amazing. And it's a terrible shame that I spent the first 18 years of my life living there, but not appreciating it. So I'm kind of, I've, I've spent the past 10 years of my life kind of, you know, backtracking and trying to discover uh, my passion for my roots and my culture and my food and my people. And and turns out New York City is a pretty cool place to do that. So my ethos in cooking, there really is none. You know, I think that is the ethos. It's just, I cook whatever the hell I want. Yeah, we, 86 is, is kind of restrained in terms of being a Taiwanese restaurant. But the beauty of being a Taiwanese restaurant and being a Taiwanese person cooking at a Taiwanese restaurant is as long as I dub it Taiwanese and I'm not like stepping on other people's toes, it can't be Taiwanese. I often make the joke that I keep a little jar of five spice on me. So whatever I eat, I just dab a little five spice on it and, and call it Taiwanese. 
I've been in the industry for six years now, and every year my my mentality kind of changes and morphs. In 2016, I started my first restaurant. I was a minority owner and chef uh, at a Chinese noodle bar. And back then, I didn't really know about what I wanted to do. I didn't really have this crazy passion for Taiwanese food, but I knew I wanted to do Chinese noodles. And it was just all sorts of craziness. It was, the menu spanned from Xi'an to Sichuan to Taiwan to Shanghai. I was 23, 22, and I was just doing crazy stuff that I would never do today. And, and you know, today I would prefer something that's more simple, that is a little bit more straightforward and has more historical context, if that makes any sense. What do you mean by crazy? What's an example of a dish or a way you were cooking in the past that's somehow different now? Yeah, so let's take beef noodle soup. Uh, a lot of people consider beef noodle soup as the national dish of Taiwan. Taiwanese people didn't even eat beef before the 1950s, which is crazy. The, the beef noodle soup was created by a Sichuan implant who fled to Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War. And within 50 years, within 30 years, it became the national dish. That dish itself kind of revolutionized how Taiwanese people ate beef as a protein instead of seeing, well, it's paired up with the, you know, uh, the industrial revo revolution, agricultural revolution in, on the island of Taiwan because cattle was used as a, a means of uh, agriculture rather than, you know, protein. But beef noodle soup, when I was 23, uh, my beef noodle soup was spicy. It had five different garnishes and toppings. It was inspired by ramen and different parts of Sichuan, but it also resembled a little bit of Taiwanese flavor. Today, my beef noodle soup has noodles, broth, beef, a little cilantro, and a little um, pickled mustard greens. So it's technically two toppings. The aromatics don't really count. So going from like five and six to two, it's really boiled down to a, a much simpler and much more straightforward representation of what the dish is. And it's kind of truer to what I want to eat today. And I feel like as I get older, I want things to be a little bit simpler. I think that across the board, that's what people want. So just to lend some specificity to this conversation, what was the first restaurant that you opened in the East Village? That was called Tang, correct? Yeah. That was the one that you founded after college. Yeah. And then you left there at some point prior to founding 886, correct? Very correct. Yes. And tell us a little bit about that. First of all, what 886 means and also how you decided upon that location in the East Village. We then want to talk a little bit about this pivot that you embarked on during COVID. I think a lot of restaurant operators went through this period of time during COVID where you just had to figure it out. And it seems like you did an all world job of really figuring out what you had to do and executing and then doing an amazing job for your employees. You also founded, beyond that, you founded an initiative to bring awareness to hate crimes. I mean, this is what you've done in the last year and a half. It's unbelievable, man. I appreciate it. I mean, it's kind of a, a blur. So 886 is um, Taiwan's international calling code. But when I came to the States for school, I had to call my parents on a landline or like using my cell phone at the dial plus 886 and then their number. So 886 is also slang in Chinese and Mandarin as like bye-bye, like bye-bye. Like, but the actual purpose of the name is to pay homage to, you know, us calling home. 
plus it's it's a name everybody can pronounce. That was also one of the the uh, the benefits of calling it just strictly numbers. Yeah, in stark contrast to that, the United States country code is one. Yep, so is Canada's. So we're located on 26 St. Mark's Place. A little interesting story is uh, the business that existed before 886 in that location was a Taiwanese boba and like snack shop. Snacks like popcorn chicken, like all sorts of fried stuff, street food. Really casual. I went to NYU. I used to spend a lot of time there uh, as a Taiwanese transplant being homesick. And it was kind of a, it was a, it was a gathering place for, for a lot of Taiwanese refugees, if you may, cultural refugees, that, where they're feeling homesick and there's nowhere else to, to turn to in New York. Uh, I got to meet the owner of this uh, restaurant. Oh, it's called TK Kitchen. I got to meet Peggy. And Peggy's a wonderful human being. She was, I think, 13 years into her 15-year lease. And she just kind of wanted out. She wanted to move on from the hospitality industry. It's very tolling job. The timing kind of really aligned because I was, you know, having a little bit of disagreements with my previous business partners at the, the at the Tang, and so we were negotiating a buyout where they would buy me out, and this uh, lease kind of presented itself to me. And uh, the next thing you know, we were signing the lease to to take over. I couldn't stand the thought of 26 St. Mark's Place not being a Taiwanese restaurant anymore. As far as I've known New York, that space has been associated with home. And so if I could do something that helps pass on the torch or continue uh, the lineage of the, of the real estate, that, that was something I was willing to do. We changed a bunch in terms of the interior. And uh, we opened in 20, uh, July 11th of 2018. For those who don't know about Taiwanese cuisine, what are three sort of pillars that may indicate uh, a specific Taiwanese dish? So Taiwanese food is really the amalgamation of all these different cultures, especially Japanese, Chinese. These two cuisines, if you mash them up, Put it on a you know um, soil-rich island, sandwiched by two different seas, with a lot of uh, fresh seafood and great climate for fruits, vegetables, and livestock. That becomes Taiwanese food. Beef noodle soup, as for mentioned, there's also a dish called uh, the fan, which is braised pork belly over rice. Pork is probably remains one of the most predominant proteins in Taiwan, and all sorts of different usage of, of pork. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about head to tail, pig's blood cake. And in Taiwan, blood is probably one of the cheapest ingredients on a pig, right? And But to not waste anything, you utilize blood and you thicken it by steaming it with sticky rice and it changes texture and it becomes a snack and it's affordable and you're literally using something that other people throw away. Another interesting thing about Taiwanese, I guess, pigs and hogs that they, they raise is Taiwan doesn't export any pork. Taiwan is a population of uh, 23 million, so that's not a lot. And to my knowledge, Taiwan does not export beef, pork, or chicken. And therefore, all the pork raised on the island is consumed within the island. Something that is really uh, prevalent on the island is, is pre-rigor mortis beef or pre-rigor mortis food, uh, protein. So the hogs would be slaughtered morning of, organs harvested, blanched, 
and then sliced and then just dip it with a little ginger and soy sauce, soy paste, like a thickened soy sauce. And there's zero gaminess. If you try to do that with any American offal, it's going to taste disgusting. Uh, but because it is so fresh in Taiwan, it, the ingredient allows you to, to use this technique. And it's simple, it's affordable, and it's breakfast. So that's a little interesting tidbit about Taiwan that I've always wanted to throw out into the world. And I think it's a little underappreciated. Okay, so you're rolling, you've got 886 going, and then March 2020 is. Tell us a little bit about what happened, what you experienced, and what you did to get your business through that period of time. Also, some of the initiatives that you took on to make it all work through that very difficult and challenging time period for all of us. Oh, man. March 2020, I mean, anybody who was in the industry would probably say the same thing. It's a fucking nightmare, right? It's just the worst month ever. We started experiencing a dip in February because our, our demographic is still large. A lot of them are international students from Taiwan, China, and Asia. Once the virus hit China in January, we started seeing a sales, sales dip. But January is typically slow for us anyways. And, but, but by February, uh, Lunar New Year is supposed to pick up, but it did not. And so when March hit, March, we were already down 50%. And uh, it was in survival mode. We didn't make the decision to close down the restaurant until like two hours before the, the governor mandated it. It was tough, man. Well, New York was also hit much harder than a lot of other parts of the country early on. So what you felt early on was exasperated just by the fact that you're in New York, likely. It was surreal because it almost seemed like it happened overnight. Obviously, it didn't, but it, it, it seemed like it did in terms of like the communal infection rate. It, just, it was climbing so rapidly. Once it hit, we closed down like everybody else. Uh, I was actually a little hesitant to open up for, for delivery, but, uh, because just because I thought, you know, like everybody's fleeing New York, how busy would delivery be? And, and it's, I didn't think it would make sense, but my business partner, Andy, he was like, let's just give it a try. Why the hell not? You know? Um, and I sat on it for a day. Uh, we have all these employees, you know, we don't know how long this is going to take. And other reality started to sink in. And so I told him, let's do it. I'll cook and you can man the front of house, quote unquote, front of house. But every single penny we make is going to our staff. We're not going to pay the landlord. We're not going to pay our distributors. Right now, we just got to take care of the people who's been taking care of us for the past two years. And he was completely on board. And, and Andy and I are very lucky to have each other. Our values are extremely aligned. And he also grew up in Taiwan, so our, we had a very uh, similar upbringing, I'd say. And so that helps with the, our, our uh, partnership and our camaraderie. We decided to, to make bentos that are inspired by the Taiwanese 7-Elevens. A bunch of pre-packed bento boxes, sealed up, microwave-friendly. You pop in the microwave for like five minutes and you got a whole meal with rice, protein, veggies, and all sorts of stuff. We announced on Instagram and people really resonated with our mission and, and we just wanted to take care of our staff. You know, uh, we have people who depend on our paycheck to pay rent, to send their children to school and to put food on the table. The reality 
was there, like right in front of me. So there was no ignoring that. Back then, it was survival mode. We only needed to take care of our employees. Like Andy and I were on unemployment, but we needed to take care of the people who worked the hardest for the restaurants across the United States. But when shit hit the fan, they were the first to be abandoned. We called up a few friends who also were in the same boat as us. And we were like, hey, we have all this extra cash flowing around. You guys want to join in on us? And, and they did. Whole Foods, which is also in the East Village, a Taiwanese beef noodle shop. Um, well, now they're less so a Taiwanese beef noodle shop. They're a Taiwanese restaurant. They do a bunch of cool shit. And uh, Raku, which is a Japanese udon restaurant. And they're a restaurant group. We all kind of joined forces, had a really expansive logistical uh, operation. Which hospitals, how many meats, food allergies, how many vegetarian, what time, which department. So we were just making drops. We raised close to $150,000 in two months. And uh, two months or three months, I, such a blur. And um, we donated about 13,500 bento boxes. It was never something that we wanted to, be, to keep doing. You know, we wanted to use that initiative to get us through the toughest times and get everybody through the toughest times until we could reopen safely. Wow, that's inspiring and unbelievable that you were able to accomplish that. Let me ask you a question. How did you initially, when you were talking to your vendors and partners, how did you approach the conversation of them not being paid? How did you go to them and say, look, we're going to operate but not pay you? How did that conversation go or how was it approached? Very, very interesting to me. The good thing about our business is it's only owned by Andy and myself. We have a small restaurant. Before COVID, we, we sat 40 people max. Now with outdoor dining, we seat 100. It was a whole other conversation. Same kitchen size as 40 seats. Not fun. So Andy and I were on the same page. You know, we, we I talked about it just now. Same values. We realized that our priority was our staff. In particularly, our staff were in need. So that was just a partner thing. Vendors was interesting. Our biggest vendor is this Chinatown guy. Well, flushing. So he, he drives around in his van, two dudes. I order exclusively with WeChat in Mandarin. And uh, they supply Chinese, Chinese restaurants across the city. Not even that many because they're an independent operation. So once the, the pandemic hit, they were like, hey, I know, you know tough times are tough for you. And so take your time on the payment. It doesn't matter. Like if you go down, we go down with you. It doesn't matter. So that was another sense of like, just, it was really touching because our vendors really showed us kind of an, an instrument of support and uh, a sense of, of we're in this together. Uh, we did have to switch to another vendor uh, during the bento box operation because our Chinatown guys just, they weren't, they weren't operating. But the good thing is, once we started the bento box operation, we knew we could pay them because we had a very stable revenue coming in. Wasn't that difficult, actually. It's wonderful that they were open to supporting you in that way and having that conversation with you um, about being flexible on terms. I know during that time, many of the vendors we dealt with kind of just turtled a little bit the same way that a lot of restaurants had to where they just didn't want to extend terms or they actually reduced the amount of time that restaurants had to pay because they got nervous about the restaurant's ability to pay. 
So the fact that you had vendors like that who stepped up to the plate the same way you did is amazing. What are your goals within the industry? What's your sort of North Star? And what are you working on and crafting simultaneously? You know, I'd be lying if I didn't say have more restaurants, right? That's our, my second one is being built right now. And we're like 40% done with construction. But I think the larger picture is I, uh, I would like to see more kids being comfortable with their own culture. I think it's, it's, it's been happening. It certainly has been much more prevalent nowadays than, than when I first came to the States 10 years ago. People be repping their own roots, and, and that's something I, I love singing. Everybody just wanted to open new American restaurants 10 years ago. I feel like I want to be in a position where I can kind of influence that Taiwanese kid who's really shy, who's like, hey, that idiot can do it. You know, maybe I'll listen to my culture too. It was really revelating for, for me to look within myself. And there was, it took five years of being in, in the States to, to, for me to start doing that. And imagine if a middle schooler living in, I don't know, Minnesota was inspired and, and started to learn more about you know, his or her own Taiwanese roots. There's so many people who are a thousand times more talented than me, but just didn't have the same realization that I had. And so if we can unlock those in the next generation, then we're in a much better place. And I get to eat more good food. So what's not to like? I think those are the two biggest uh, things I look forward to. It sounds like you've got a good game plan, though, for everything that you've built up to this point, and you're a good operator. So, yes, the second one is hard to open uh, because you're scaling up resources and you're trying to, you know, when you're doing the first one, you do a lot of it yourself. Mm -hmm. But when you try to open the second one, you've got to do both of them and not close the first one. If you're trying to do two or three restaurants at one time, it is a jump because you have to be resourced properly. Otherwise, you can just overwhelm yourself and your staff. Yeah. You can, you can just be too busy and things don't work that well because people are just overwhelmed and spread too thin. So I think having the right support staff and having a good team around you, obviously having the right back office people who can support accounting and HR and that type of thing, I think is really, really important to have in place before opening that second one for sure. Yeah, that's something I have to sit down and, and talk to the team about and really decide how we want to scale things. And because I feel like there's it's a one shot opportunity. It's got Eminem playing in the background. You can make that employee and customer experience perfect. That I think is the most important thing. And then HR. I mean, we talk so much on the podcast about employee experience, right? Just about how we've, as an industry, kind of neglected the employee experience for so long. We've thought a lot about guest experience and done a fairly good job with that. But over time, we haven't necessarily made the employee a priority in our thought process. And I think having an HR person um, or some kind of HR support, even if it's third party, that allows you to really put the employee at the forefront of your thought process day in, day out. I really feel like that's a critical hire. And I know you're already there in your mindset, but I think having someone whose job really is about optimizing that employee experience every single day, I think that can go a long, long way in making sure that your company has longevity and then your employees stay with you and are ultimately happy. That makes sense. That's kind of part of our uh, company ethos is just 
empower people to do things and, and not try to do everything yourself. Well, I can tell you, we were very inspired by everything that you've done and that you're telling us about your background and the last year and a half pivoting and creating these initiatives and such an employee first mentality is really inspiring. I think it's something that every restaurateur or anyone in this business for that matter who's listening to this episode is going to take heed of and listen to. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, Eric, you are totally amazing. Dude, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's been so fun. And that's all for our bite-sized new segment. You can find us at happymouthpodcast.com, restaurants.yelp.com backslash happymouth, or on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for dining with us today, and we hope to see you next time. Have a nice day.